You're listening to The Interview, in-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. This episode of The Retail Exchange is brought to you in association with Peak Technologies. Peak Technologies are helping world-leading retailers across Europe and the US to achieve sustainable, responsible and rapid growth. Retail operations optimise, productivity boosted, supply chain lifecycle extended, waste reduced. Unlock access to real-time visibility of critical assets and processes with the latest in digital retail technology solutions. Visit peaktech.co.uk today to learn more and book your free 15-minute consultation. Peak Technologies. Achieve sustainability without reducing quality or value. Hello, I'm Carl McKeever, and welcome to the latest in the interview series from the Retail Exchange podcast, as we bring you insight and opinion from premier retail industry professionals and thought leaders. Today, I'm joined by Matt Alexander, co-founder and CEO of Neighbourhood Goods, as well as the brand's president, Ashley Shelton Congo. Together, we explored the brand history of Neighbourhood Goods, the future of department stores, and the shift towards community-focused retailing. Here's the episode. Welcome both of you. It's absolutely fabulous to have you here. Beaming bright eyes looking at me. We are beaming. First of all, Matt, you are the brainchild of the concept. What is Neighbourhood Goods? For those people who are unfamiliar, tell us about it. Sure. So we describe ourselves as being a new type of department store of sorts. So to the consumer, it presents in a fairly traditional way. You know, sort of small comparison to a lot of more established department stores, about 10,000 to 15,000 square feet but fairly large from a consumer perspective. And we have restaurants in the spaces, we have our own staff, it's all of our own design. So it presents in a way that sort of harkens back to a traditional department store. Behind the scenes though and on the back end, it runs on a very progressive sort of financial and technological system where brands, rather than sort of being purchased at wholesale and featured on a seasonal basis, instead brands pay to be in the store. And so we, as a result, don't have any pressure to put things on sale and otherwise. And for a lot of these brands, some of them are very well-established, big names. Others are much younger and just getting off the ground. And so it allows for us to have this sort of experience where we don't end up in a position where everything is being put on sale and sort of cannibalizing their broader channels. And it also makes it very flexible from a logistics perspective for them as well. And I so, guess my own experience of that might be similar to that of ABC Carpet and Home. Yeah. Right. Yeah, relatively similar, sort of spiritually speaking. I, you know, I think what we're sort of known for is working with a lot of direct-to-consumer, digitally native brands that have never otherwise been in physical retail. And you are both uh, online and offline physical retail. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Ashley, yeah. the evolution of the concept. I mean, look, you've got four stores now. What? Why Dallas first? Yeah, I think a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands they they found that the Dallas and the Plano market specifically. I mean, Dallas is a a mecca for shopping. I mean, let's start there. I mean, you know, it's legendary in terms of its brands. But, I mean, you know, you tend to think of a location strategy. You wouldn't necessarily pluck Dallas out of the air and saying, that's where we want to be first before anywhere else. Yeah, well, it's where a lot of brands weren't. And and they saw potential just because of the, the customers they were already able to acquire online being in that location. So having kind of a physical pop up there made a lot of sense. Um, A brand we often talk about in that, vein is uh, Dollar Shave Club. Um, so they had uh, they had 
spots with us in our Chelsea Market location and in our Plano store. In our Plano store, their goal was to acquire new customers, to introduce them to their product and, and their model as a whole. And so they had sort of a lounge built out. In New York, in our Chelsea Market store, there were already a ton of Dollar Shave Club customers in that region and area. And so it was more of a convenience thing. You could come in and, and grab a new thing of shave cream or something like that and take it and go. So we were able to kind of use our Dallas store for different purposes than we use our Chelsea Market store and even our Austin mm. store. And where next? That's exciting. Uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't sort of been getting into all of it too publicly, but we have two stores that are on the way in California. Is this a breaking news moment? I'm feeling that we need to kind of do a bit of a drum roll here and you know, yeah. we'll cut to commercials and come back. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I won't sort of make it this sort of big moment, but yeah, we're about to open two in California and, okay. and they're coming very soon, uh, both in Southern California. Um, Can I push you for uh, an even more defined map pin? Uh, I'll give you broadly that we have one coming in LA and we have one coming in Orange County. Um, And Orange County will come first and and fairly imminent. And then we'll have more to come further along in the year. We, We haven't opened a new store since before the pandemic. And so this is our first sort of return into that rhythm and, and we intend to keep it up from here. So I can I can see why you went into Austin. I spent a lot of time myself there last summer, having a look at the retail and immersing myself in the neighborhoods and things. And you know, that's a city which is like grow, grow, grow. Yeah. So I can absolutely understand why you, you know, decided to put a store there. What strikes me as quite interesting looking at the stores you have already is they're very different in terms of look, feel and profile. Is that something which is just happening by accident or is that part of the thinking? integral to it yeah I mean it's really crucial I mean I think you know the the retail industry runs on a currency of relevance right so we want to ensure that what we feature is relevant to a given area and so it will be different size different format we may have the same brands across all those stores but with radically different products in context of the Dollar Shave Club example it wouldn't make sense to have an enormous build out in our space here which is smaller looks a little bit different and serves a little bit of a different customer type Uh, whereas in texas we have the space and it it can serve a different customer in a way that sort of suits more of their mentality and what they're looking for and so i think it's a really crucial component of what we do and and it it continues so when we open in california each of those stores is going to be radically different from each other so 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 we can't expect kind of corporate to be putting down this footprint where everything and everyone has to look and be the same no, no, not at all. I mean, we we obviously have a very sort of particular approach to training and there's a lot of underlying things, but otherwise the, the fixtures in each of our stores have all been designed and produced locally. They all sport sort of different look and feel. I think the, the big thing that really does sort of uh, exist across all is, is, is more in that feeling realm where we try to make it very welcoming, very approachable easy to understand what you're walking into where I think it could be very overwhelming if we really leaned more into the new retail concept and the model and everything else and so we call ourselves a department store we're not really much of a department store but it provides a useful expectational framework for people that come in. So let's just have a look at the assortment then what do you sell? Uh, Presumably it's a whole range of men's, women's, kids for the home and I believe you also have a hospitality offer too. 
Yeah, we do. So um, it, it does range. We have um, ASOP in two of our stores, and, and we have working sinks where you can like actually try out the product. Um, anything from like a piece on Lee, which is the coat I'm wearing now, which is sort of affordable cashmere, um, and they come in on a seasonal basis. Um, we also have a marketplace offering where we have um, a lot of the really cool food that you see on Instagram that you have never tried before, fishwife, tin seafood, things like that, um, where we have that in store. And then a lot of those are also offered on our, on our menus. So we have two in-house developed restaurant concepts um, and we're able to feature those products and you can try them on the menu and then take them home with you as well. And in terms of your approach to curation of those brands? I mean, so brands apply through our site. We also have a lot of great investors that invest in brands and so we have a pipeline there. And then obviously a lot of brands talk to each other and so we get some references and otherwise. So we have a pretty consistent inbound flow of brands. And the way we work with them is that some will come into our ecosystem, Ashley mentioned Aesop. They launched with us, it was meant to be a few month engagement, but they've been with us for the best part of three years. And so we'll have some that stay quite some time. We have others like Peace On Me, which you also mentioned, that will be there for a minute and then they'll come back the year following. And so we sort of allow for this level of flexibility there. So we're always representing the same product categories but the brands within those and the products from those brands will just change quite regularly. And so we, we really do focus on saying no more than we say yes. Right. We, we want brands that come in that have a shared sort of value system and ethical system. And uh, we look for things that we think will really resonate with a given sort of market. So and, and, and are yeah. you happy to take kind of big established brands, you know, those kind of household names, or are you looking for the new, the different, the experimental? It's a balance. Um, you know, we've mentioned Aesop, they're big, they have a lot of their own stores, uh, very well regarded, but it's a very interesting brand, great story, and it, and it really suits our environment. You put those right alongside a brand like Maud in the sexual wellness space that's really just getting off the ground. I think we were their first physical retailer a few years ago. That starts to form a really interesting beauty and wellness sort of section where it balances out those younger brands with the more established. And then and then as well, we try to also feature a small assortment of local brands at any given time as well. And so it, it obviously always fluctuates by virtue of our model, but we really do try to have uh, a level of representation that, that includes very well established, offset by the sort of high growth newcomers. And presumably, Ashley, this gives you a great amount of flexibility about how you can reshape the store yeah. you know seasonally monthly weekly I don't know what the frequency but continually offering something new to consumers. Absolutely, and that's what customers do come to expect with us. So every Thursday, we launch new brands. Sometimes that's two new brands, sometimes that's five to 10 new brands. Over the holidays, I think it was like 11 new brands at one point in time. Um, so it, it can be a lot, but that's what's exciting about it is that we have this rotating curation, and then we get to tell that story, and we get to come up with a way that makes all of that relevant. We love these products, but how can they be used together as part of your lifestyle to, to elevate that lifestyle in some way, to make it um, um, to make it better and kind of make it really tangible for the customer. Matt mentioned very briefly, just in passing, that that, that filters into the way you do something like training, for example. But do the brands also bring the people to their space? I mean, the store is primarily our staff. Um, so that is part of the consistent experience. There's okay. a few exceptions to that. So we have a brand called Love Weld in the store right now doing permanent jewelry. So they have a welder in store since that is a specialty craft. And, and we've had you know physical trainers in store before with a product 
called Tonal, um, since that was more of a specialized deal. Um, but primarily the staff is ours. Um, right. They call themselves storytellers quite frequently because they love getting to know those brand stories and, and telling them. And you know, we've even, to the mod example earlier, the mod co-founder had come in one time and um, one of our, our team was telling her, her brand story and she was like, wow, that was excellent. So they really trust us with those stories. So and that's probably great for your teammates too because yeah. they're constantly being re-motivated by new stuff and new stories and getting excited about new things to sell. Yeah, what you hear from everyone is that they've been into the store and they've been like testing our staff on their knowledge, right? Mm. But the thing is, our staff know that that's going on and they really enjoy it. They love giving tours. We host events constantly. We host like anything from concerts to pitch days to Cocktail product classes. launches. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of everything. So you're trying to build a different kind of culture as well as a different kind of store. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we, we use Slack as our underlying sort of communication system and all of our corporate teams in there, but also all of our store employees as well. So everyone has access to everyone. So I talk to folks in our stores all the time and we're sort of throwing around different ideas and collaborating on different perspective. And so we try to have a really sort of open uh, environment where we really embrace a degree of curiosity and, and fallibility, right? Where we know that, uh, that we're not always gonna get it right, but as long as we're always trying to sort of challenge ourselves to get better and to try new things, that it carries us in a very productive and interesting direction. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that the folks in the stores really buy into. And, it, and it's only really lip service if they sort of get it in the orientation on day one and then never hear from us again. But if it's much more of a dynamic and sort of active relationship, it can really foster something quite special. So Matt, where did this begin? You know, what, where did this crazy idea kind of come from? Because look, you're, you're operating in a sector and you're trying to kind of book a trend in a sector. The department store market and model, many people said was broken, it's over, their days are gone. And actually we've seen plenty of evidence of that. You know, Debenhams in the UK, we've seen countless stores in the, in the US, big and small, all ends the spectrum. You know, I was personally devastated when Barney's finally closed its doors. What was your inspiration to say, we can do this and we can do this differently? Yeah, so th there's a lot of different pieces to it. We incorporated the company back in 2017. It was a, a guy called Mark Macinter and I that started it together. And Mark's very prominent in the world of commercial real estate and has helped all sorts of amazing companies get into physical retail. Um, and for me, I had uh, been in the retail space for a while. I had built my first company and sold it just recently. And in particular, though, in parallel, I had started a sort of not-for-profit retail experiment uh, in Dallas where we gave away free space to a lot of younger brands to uh, sell their wares for a short-term period of time before the holiday. And they would staff themselves, we would host all sorts of events, and a lot of the brands that ended up coming into that, like thousands applied to our great surprise, and a lot of those brands today are still around and have loads of stores, and it turned into this really sort of a uh, vibrant and powerful moment in context of the communities that sort of came together around it. They came to the events, kids would come to get pictures with Santa and so on. And so in 2017, Mark approached me and he, he had been thinking about this from his own perspective. He had helped develop a food hall in Plano where we first opened, just north of Dallas. And he was thinking that there was an opportunity to sort of bookend the development with something spiritually similar to a food hall, but operating on a retail front. And so we got talking about this opportunity and sort of ran along from there. And it's a recognition that we found with a lot of investors, a lot of brands that customer acquisition costs were flying up online, that customer loyalty was really hard to retain in a really crowded market, and that physical retail can really help set you apart from the crowd and build a much more profitable business. But it just is very difficult to do. And so we tried to create this approach 
to bring brands into a space where it feels natural and it feels cohesive and it feels welcoming and it has a very particular sort of uh, warmth to it that we try to cultivate. And so I think one of the big things that we've always tried to think about is that, you know, the reason we have the opportunity to exist is because of the complacency of a lot of uh, larger department stores that fail to keep up with and in lockstep with customer behaviour. Yeah, and we should be very mindful that half a mile away from here in the Hudson's Yards development, another department store based in Dallas, Nyman Marcus, opened a big flagship, all singing, all dancing, mega store is no more. So what are you doing that's going to see you succeed where other big groups like that have not continued their momentum? I don't think it's anything necessarily specific to one retailer or the other. I think for a lot of retailers it's become sort of endless different arrays of technology and smart mirrors and increasingly it's this sort of capital E experiential retail where people are putting you know ball pits and trampolines into stores and Whenever we travel, especially with new people on the team, I often sort of, when we're walking through an airport, I'll say, you know, like, why does that person have this backpack and this person has this backpack? And it all comes down to, like, who are you and who do you want to be seen as and otherwise? And I think a good retail experience is something that provides that degree of story and context that can sort of translate into a degree of confidence in your personal life where you can say actually you know the founder behind this brand is a really interesting person you can tell the story that gives you that extra spring in your step in your day and I think websites especially the direct consumer brands of the world have done a very good job telling those stories but a lot of retailers in this sort of rush to just feature as much as possible in their spaces and to be only in these malls it's hard to communicate that sort of context in a thoughtful and meaningful way. And, and, it's, so, and it's no longer tactile. Right. And so that that's where we try to play. And, and I think it comes down to just the quality and integrity of the products and the people. And I think um, it's trying to create a degree of autonomy uh, for the folks that work in our stores so that they can sort of create a little bit more of that story and that feeling of their own. And, and I think... You know, people talk about authenticity in this industry and it's, it's, it's mostly sort of a nonsense thing. Um, but for us, it's very much about, you know, uh, how do we genuinely allow people to be themselves? And, and that includes the customer. And so it, that will be a never-ending project. And I think the danger is when you think that you've just found the, the total solution for an indefinite basis. And that is not how retail works because it's not how human nature works. And so for us, like... You know, there's a lot of ways we could set up our store. You know, there's ways we can make it more about like activations and marketing and experiences, or we can do it more in context of uh, something more traditional and understandable and approachable. And I think for us, you know, you you think about going into a traditional department store, and it can be quite awkward and it can be quite anxiety-inducing. And so, how do you think about that level of comfort and how do you treat people as unique? People, a little one, bit of, one of my favourite pursuits these days is actually going into Macy's and picking stuff up off the floor <laughs> or you know, tidying up a table for them because I just feel compelled as a shopper that I need to make it better for somebody else. And if they're not going to do it, well, let me help out. Yeah, no, no comment on that one. Are you a retailer or brand wanting to be at the forefront of tomorrow's digital transformation? More than 3,500 power players from across the retail and brand ecosystem will be uniting at Shop Talk Europe 9th to the 11th of May in Barcelona to reimagine and build the latest innovations helping customers to discover, shop and buy more. It gets even better. 
If you are a retailer or brand, this is your final month to be part of ShopTalk Europe's VIP hosted programme, which will entitle you to a free ShopTalk Europe ticket worth €1,895 and €650 hotel and travel budget. What's not to love? What's more, you'll be able to curate mutually matched meetings with the industry's most cutting-edge tech providers that align to your business. The final deadline for registration is 6 of April 2023, and the hosted meeting programme is already at 90% capacity, so don't miss the boat. To find out more, search Shop Talk Europe 2023 and register for tickets. This episode is brought to you by Peak Technologies. Peak Technologies deliver change that's good for your business, the bottom line and the planet. Consumers want to know that their favourite brands are committed to sustainability. That's a given. Sustainability can accelerate growth with measurable benefits while giving your brand something to be proud of. And you need to do it now. The point is, you can break the cycle of unreliable and outdated technology that causes endless disruption to the retail floor, stockrooms and supply chain technology. How? by leveraging the latest in mobility hardware, software and services to boost productivity, extend the life cycle of your supply chain, get more from your investment by optimising processes and maximising the adoption of technology whilst also minimising your carbon footprint, reducing e-waste and achieving responsible repair, disposal and asset recycling. Peak Technologies wants to see that change, to turn will deliver change tomorrow into change today. Discover more about Peak Technologies retail and supply chain solutions. Get a free 15-minute consultation today. Visit peaktech.co.uk. You clearly have retail in the blood, but give us give us all of that kind of bio. Yeah, I mean, I so I, I'm from the UK. I moved to the US to go to university, and I intended to go straight back to the UK and um, thought I would go to law school or... Uh, go get a master's degree, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I really still don't. And I, I always was known or seen to be a, a good sort of student of the humanities, a, a good writer and otherwise, and thus was seen to be not particularly good with uh, numbers or computers or otherwise. Um, but that's actually where a lot of my passion was. And so coming to the US allowed me to study a blend of English history and computer science in a weird sort of blend that I think is actually a lot more common now and so I went into the corporate world from there for a couple of years, but while I was there, I started writing about the industry and sort of uh, trying to develop a little bit more of my own voice, turned into a podcast, and, and that turned into my first company where I was sort of exposed to this retail world where everyone was really coming to grips with um, the storytelling piece, in particular in a digital context. Everyone was talking about editorial commerce and otherwise, and, and it was something that I cared about just from the perspective that I cared about those stories and I cared about how you told them and I and I saw it as a meaningful opportunity where a lot of people were hiring a huge volume of people to run a buying department or or a partnerships team or whatever it was and my perspective was much more that you just need a good editor really and and that can be one person and you know it comes from a love of print magazines that are you know very tactile and very beautiful and very inspirational and interesting and and finite um and it sort of carried me into this direction of retail, which I never would have expected. And I think when I was starting this company, I had a real sort of existential crisis that I was like, oh, I guess I'm a sort of a retail person now. Um, 
and and I've really come to love it. And I, it, it's it's not something that I came into with like a huge amount of intention. I suppose it sort of it just happened, and it came from a position of care and passion. And I think that's ultimately where it can go in a really fun direction, right? I come across a lot of entrepreneurs that start things just because they see. You know, market opportunity or, or whatever it is, and I always think that that's a faulty basis. And but so also, presumably, because you've not necessarily been ingrained in an, in, a, in an industry or in a sector or in a brand for a long time, you come to it with a kind of a freshness and originality and a purity of thought, perhaps, which you know others don't. Yeah, yeah, I'm sort of naive to an extent, for sure. <laughs> well, you're using a word I wasn't uh, yeah. going to. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, it, I mean, uh, I, I think if you had to sort of summarize what we look for in people that work at our company regardless of where they sit. Uh, it's curiosity. And I think that spirit of uh, trying new things, not expecting everything to work out, and, and knowing that that's okay, and that's part of the project. And so um, for me, I don't derive much ambition or, or momentum from money. I, I get much more energy from the prospect of contributing to a conversation larger than myself. and. And knowing that there's a lot of other people out there doing interesting things as well. And I, I love that piece of the job. And so, you know, Neighborhood Goods sort of represents all these different aspects. It's, it's editorial in many respects. We, we have an internal podcast that Ashley and I do together. There's um, obviously this feeling of doing new things constantly with new stores, new brands, our own brand. Um, and so it scratches a lot of itches for me. And, and I think that's very much uh, what's made it sort of just so fun to continue to build because it's just not one particular thing it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people and it depends on your perspective and I think approaching it from the angle that a lot of these larger department stores really just sort of sat on their hands for a long time um, I think it gives us this real energy to do quite the opposite and to, and, to really and this be is perhaps worth being small and not being in separate silos and not necessarily having decades of historical data to have to draw on is is kind of quite enabling in a sense. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely free. I mean, within the sort of financial parameters, obviously, but we're free to try things. Yeah. But I think it's also that like we've uh, a lot of retailers have designed their branding to be the shiniest object in the room. They want to come across in a very perfect way, which is very difficult. Like you mentioned Macy's, like everyone's seen those pictures sort of doing the rounds of product on the floor and otherwise, and that's incredibly difficult to control and handle and otherwise. And when you're of that size, it sort of gets out in front. No, For it us, isn't. No, it isn't. It's just called having sufficient resource to do the folding. I mean, look, let's just knock that one very clearly on the head. If there was sufficient resource and people were motivated to pick the stuff off the floor, it wouldn't be there, right? Right. But all to say that, you know, I think it's just this, uh, this opportunity in the broader context of the marketplace to, to do something that can sort of not take itself too seriously. And I think that's really sort of missed in the space. So, Ashley, the best partnerships are ones where there is a great deal of complementarity, but not necessarily total synergy of thought. How are you different in your background and experience and the way that you operate to Matt? We, we have very different backgrounds. Um, I think that, that when we talk about art and science, like Matt is a little bit more on the art side, I'm a little bit more on the science side. So but which brain is this? Are you the left or the right brain? I, I never know. Science is left, I think art is right. I have absolutely I'm, no I could be off on that. M mine are in the feet, by the way, both. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's just kind of trying to balance both those things out because you can't over-index in one of them. I mean, 
I, I think as much as I want things to be process oriented and templated, like that would break us. Like all of our stores, they have to be flexible. They have to be molded by the people who work there, by the communities that they're in. And so it, it's kind of about finding that balance together. And in terms of almost the division of responsibilities, where do the lines fall for you guys? You know, we actually are planning to have dinner tonight to work that out. Okay, well, exactly. This, Can I be a fly on the wall? <laughs> I promise just to sit there quietly. Actually, that's not a promise because that would be quite difficult. <laughs> I mean, I think based on our sort of history of working together, it'll be, there'll be definition to it, but it'll be fairly fluid. I mean, I think there'll be moments where I'm the one really sort of spending a lot more time with, on people and culture, and there'll be other moments where that's really more of Ashley's purview. And I think it's just about how you adapt to the demands of the work. And so at the moment, we're going through all sorts of different projects, right? We're opening new stores, we're bringing in additional capital, we're uh, doing all sorts of different transactions all in parallel. Um, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about international growth and otherwise. And when you're doing those sorts of things, uh, it's very easy to leave other but extremely important things behind. Mm. And so I think having the right sort of partnership and, and balance there is so crucial. And I think we just sort of, found rhythm early on in sort of how we could interchange and I think um, sort of recently shifted Ashley into this new title and sort of role uh, really to sort of represent that more officially because I think we'd sort of had this plan that the chief of staff role and they were goods was going to be temporary and was going to rotate through people and Ashley was the first person in the role and immediately made it her own and it quickly turned into something much bigger and so I think it's very much for us about uh, creating the right level of challenge to continue doing the right thing by our people, but also pushing ourselves forward. And, I, and so it's, it's about who has the eye on the ball and, and what is the other one doing, right? And then that will change all the time. I, it seems to me, talking to you both and looking at you, it seems a fairly symbiotic relationship. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we, we traveled a lot in the early days, right? And that, that's a very good way to start sort of getting to know someone. And so we were sort of right in the midst of opening new stores and otherwise. And I think, you know, we just have a similar sort of philosophy about things, but a different approach. So it, it's been, yeah, it's been great. I mean, it, it, it happened very organic. Yeah. Oh, you know, when you travel with people, you get to see all the embarrassing things that they do, like <laughs> getting on and off an airplane. It's I not ate pretty, tacos, tacos on the airplane yesterday. Oh. That was embarrassing. So you really get to see everyone. Yeah, we, yesterday, actually, we've been working together for years and we travel constantly. And yesterday was, I think, the first time we've ever sat relatively close to each other on a plane. And, um, Does he get all diva-like about which seat? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talked the ear off of the person next to him, clapped when we landed. <laughs> oh, no, goodness me. <laughs> Ran off the plane the second we landed. <laughs> and left something at his seat. For and, uh, sure, yeah, then held up everyone to run back right, for it. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can see it. You guys are clearly doing a lot for small companies. You are champions of the new. How important is it, do you think, in the whole way that business, retailers, department stores, the area you're in, are seen to be championing um, entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would put it more broadly that I think if you are a brand or a retailer today and you don't have a value system, then you're going to be irrelevant very quickly. I mean, I think people care about brands to an extent, but they care a lot more about people. And I think the more you can bring your people to the forefront and communicate the things they care about and believe in and support those is, is really important today. And so we think very, very hard about the brands that come into our spaces. Uh, sometimes we're spending a huge amount of time really looking into 
everything about them to make sure that it sort of uh, meets the sort of informal criteria we have in mind. And so we really so there's of, a good fit. Yeah, that and that it's it's something that we can really feel uh, collectively proud of, right? We we don't want to bring a brand into the store that claims to be all about uh, sustainability, for example, but they actually have a lot of policies that are counter to that or whatever it is. Sure. And so it's just it's just thinking a lot about that. And so I think, you know, for younger companies, yeah, we want to be a platform for them. We want to be a point of pride. We want to be something that they tell people, yeah, our first ever physical store was at Neighborhood Goods. And and even for those that have done that, that they keep coming back and we come up with new and fun ways of sort of showing up in the world together. Um, but the, the, the really critical thing, I think, is how we can do that in a way that exudes a very a very true and very genuine sort of perspective and you know we're not perfect we're all human right so i think we've really sort of kept this notion of fallibility at the core of our brand right i, that I we're read going that's a word wrong. that comes up on your website actually yeah. and it, it when i read it it kind of took my breath away almost you know i literally stopped at that page because it's very, I think, unusual for a brand to you know, kind of almost admit that we may well have failings, but let us know and we'll try and do something about it. It just seemed a very sincere and, and quite a human word to use on, a, on a, effectively a, an e-com site. Yeah, I mean, coming into 2020, we, we already had it as one of our core values, but coming into 2020, we entered that year on a real tear. We had just opened in New York. We were about to open in Austin. Fast Company named us as one of the top 10 most innovative retailers. And we were a year and change old at that point. And so we were riding this real high. There was all this momentum. And then our store in Austin was open for less than 24 hours before we had to close all the stores in context of the pandemic. And suddenly we went from these highs to suddenly doing furloughs and layoffs. And Ashley mentioned it earlier, but I literally redeveloped our site so that we could really emphasize more um, in the way of buy online, pick up in store. And I think, you know, we're not perfect. We're not going to get these things right every time. And I think if the more you sort of pretend that you are or you're going to, the more you're setting yourself up with more latitude uh, for criticism and failure and otherwise. And so we're not immune from criticism, of course. It's more that we're a collection of imperfect people that are trying to go and play with this big idea and, and you know to some people it's a real estate company others is a media company others is a retail company and and there's so many different ways that that can go wrong or go sideways and and I think that's an important aspect of the story we haven't opened a store since Austin right and it's not for lack of wanting to it's just the pandemic and sort of getting out of that headspace is difficult and sure. so that's where we are now and it, and it feels great but obviously uh, things change constantly and so you have to take that um, you have to keep it in mind constantly. Uh, um, when you're in such an exciting phase of the company's development and clearly of growth, there's a lot to keep you awake at night. How do you switch off? I mean, I've been doing the entrepreneurial thing long enough to, to know you need to celebrate those wins, you need to feel those losses, but you can't go too deep one way or the other. The other is that you need to create boundaries, right? So. I have little rules all throughout my life. Like I don't look at email until I've had uh, coffee in the morning. If I'm uh, in bed of any description, I won't look at email, Slack, anything else. These days with iOS 16, they added a feature called focus filters and it allows for you to set your phone into a given focus. And so I have a lot of automation set up there so it just sort of tunes out certain apps uh, and otherwise so that I can just sort of control 
when I'm engaging with that. It's not about switching off because I have to be available of course. Right, if something happens. But it's about it's, how you manage that. It's a, yeah. So like I I've taken up running in the past year and like that is a, a very sacred thing for me at this point. And so I don't want to be on my phone the whole time or to be worried about notifications and otherwise. So these days, like, you know, I'm, I'm mostly able to sleep. I have an 18 month at home, and so that poses challenges to that but um but you know it has been a healthy sort of dynamic i would say for the most part there's definitely the moments that break it you know where it gets really stressful or something's just like completely overwhelms the system so so matt runs and he has a newborn how do you switch off i, I also run and um, has a newborn and i oh, have a newborn okay. so um but so you can do kind of the whole cross-parenting tips and yeah, yeah which is nice honestly to have somebody that you can talk to about that um i, I think my schedule is a little bit less diligent I'm a little more chaotic with it but I do meditate and I do try to do like one fun thing a day I didn't know Ashley had a daily fun thing but that's great <laughs> my news. my fun thing is probably really embarrassing every day I'm just happy to get through to be honest yeah I don't know I mean I, I think it's just uh you know that we are big believers as a company in work-life balance and it's not always perfect do you right? have pets yes yeah. what pets do you have um we both have rescue dogs I yeah. have a, a chocolate lab named Goose and I have, um, he's described as an English pointer, but he's, he's definitely not just that. He's dozens of things. His name is Bob. Lovely. Well, we're all dog lovers here. We have Airedale Terriers. Uh. So we have, um, we have Nixon and Hector. And I must say goodbye to Ralph because we lost Ralph last I'm year. So, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this moment just to sort of acknowledge and yes. say on air that Ralph, you were the first and amazing. And thank you. Wow. We don't deserve dogs. No. Those names are beautiful. They're so sophisticated. Bob well, and Goose well, sound homeless. <laughs> well, i tell you how it happens. So, Ralph, obviously, we called him because he could say his own name, as in Ralph, Ralph. <laughs> uh. We got Nixon on the 4th of July, no. and we couldn't call him Trump. <laughs> Hector has his own special space. Now, you won't know this, but there was a children's cartoon in the UK called Hector's House. So Hector has his own house, which is why we called him Hector. Wow. That's sweet. I love it. Listen, guys, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for making time in your very busy day to come and talk to the Retail Exchange podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I can only wish you every success with what you're doing. I love the passion, the energy, the originality of what you're doing, and we wish you all the best of luck. This episode of the Retail Exchange was brought to you in association with Peak Technologies, using real-time information to deliver more sustainable supply chains for world-leading retailers across Europe and the US. End unreliable and outdated technology and start investing in the very latest in mobility hardware and software proven to drive down operating costs. If you want to benefit your business, its bottom line and the planet, you can't afford not to. Visit peaktech.co.uk today to learn more and book your free 15-minute consultation. Peak Technologies. Achieve sustainability without reducing quality or value. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Thanks for listening.